Hello again. I'm Steve Longo, and I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Rock and Roll Show and Tell, coming to you from the No Gloom Ballroom. This podcast is brought to you by Jason's Deli, with four convenient locations from Naples to Cape Coral, Florida. They are a must-try. Jason's Deli, where all good things come from wholesome ingredients. And Bradley's Jewelers of South Fort Myers. They specialize in amazing moments. Bradley's Jewelers. Stop by and say hello to Brad and Colby. Today's episode features the 200th guest that we had on the video live stream of Rock and Roll Show and Tell. Who was the 200th guest? Well, I was. And my producers suggested that I play something from my musical career. So I chose a live version of Under a Raging Moon performed with the John Entwistle Band in Detroit. Now, if you don't like drum solos, you're going to want to fast forward ahead by about 10 minutes. Otherwise, I'll see you out there.
That was that was a pretty amazing drum solo, my friend. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen you do the uh, monkey thing. That was cute. Oh man, I've been doing that's. I've been doing. Thank you. I've been doing the monkey thing. Um, yes, yeah, since the seventies. Did you do uh, that? At Rat, did you do that with Rat Race? Yeah, in fact, I did oh. it at the at the show at the the reunion show. I did it both nights. I think you I know did. what? I was so busy mixing you that I probably didn't, you know, pick up on that because I was too busy taking care of your vocals and drums up there. You know what I mean? I don't know. I was up in the boondocks. No, that's okay. Listen, I I was glad you were there because it was. Uh, it was a challenge that that uh, particular evening. <laughs> well, it was, but you sounded great. Well, first of all, I want to just say uh, welcome to the show, everybody. And uh, tonight's show is sponsored by Miralax and Taco Bell. Either way, one of them will get things flowing again. Nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yes, yes. That's all right. That's the only joke I'm going to crack tonight. So, uh, so all right. Look. You've been uh, before I before I do your interview. I just want to say that we thank you for what you do here every night, Monday through Friday. Um, you're keeping rock and roll alive. You're keeping music alive. You you have such amazing, interesting guests on your show. Um, obviously, some are super celebrity. Some are not a super celebrity, but they're the behind the scenes guys that really make a lot of things happen that you never even would realize and it's it's a great show it's it's so interesting and uh in fact i was at the drum center the long island drum center the other day and i, I said hello to dennis for you and and the first thing dennis said to me was man you know uh, steve's doing a great podcast he's doing a great show so people people know what you're doing man it's it's not going un uh you know appreciated so i just want you to know that i i i appreciate that i mean why i've I've always loved what I do, and um, I feel very lucky to be able to do it. And and it's fun, you know. I, I love it. So it's a two way street. I believe me. I get as much back as as anybody gets out of it. So I'm I'm uh, and I'm glad people are enjoying it. You know, that's it's that's great, and it keeps me connected to the community on a daily basis. So it's and I've met so many great people. And had great people, present company, you know, you included on the show. It's 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 uh, amazing. Just it's it's uh, so I'm feeling pretty good about it. Thank you. Um, one suggestion I have for you um, moving forward, which I would love to see you do, is I would love to see our, you, you have a YouTube channel with archives of every show on YouTube so people could you know always go back and say yeah I want to see that again or this or that it's, it would take some work but I think it would uh, help build your brand up nice too you know how about if I well you know it's interesting because I I actually have that um, I, I have a show with that I have a YouTube channel um, with shows archived on it um, I didn't know how it was going to go over and now I'm looking at being able to broadcast both to uh, Facebook and YouTube at the same time with something called Restream. So you would know about that. And so, uh, so yeah, believe me, I, I'm with you. And um, I don't know that I could get all, you know, it would take some time to get all 200 shows on there, but there's a good smattering. Yeah, um, I, listen, you know what? I, you know, during the day when you're catching frogs in the pool, you, you put the laptop on the side and you, and you, and you upload. Upload, yeah, yeah, it's the truth. Catching frogs in the—I got both of those frogs, pal. Yeah. You save them. 
little tiny frogs. Right? It's like, yeah. and I can see them. Yeah, you know, they're clinging on to the side of the tile on the pool. And it's like, oh, guys. And then, of course, I go over with a stick to try to save them and they swim away. And it's like, I'm not jumping in the pool. It's like, you know. <laughs> but, you know, frogs will be frogs. And you save them. So that's really cool. All right. So listen, let's let's do this. I'm going to do I, I'm going to do a full blown crazy interview with you today. But I, I want to start at the beginning for um let's start with 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 uh, little steve longo when uh, when you were growing where did you grow up in, in white plains new york in in a garden apartment complex on bryant avenue called bryant crescent and that's where you went to school and all that stuff growing up there well yeah i went to school i was a white plains kid my for pretty much my whole life i went to uh Marinick avenue school was my elementary school eastview junior high school was my junior high and then White Plains High School was my high school until I got thrown out. And then, you know, I went to the bad kids school. <laughs> okay. Well, all in White yeah, all in White Plains. So, so, so music, did, were your parents musicians? I, I mean, how did, how did the music come into your life? Well, the music, it's interesting that you say that, ask that. My dad, I didn't find out my parents were divorced when I was two, so I didn't uh, get a lot of dad time. But it turns out that he was, he played trumpet. And uh, my mother, I always knew, um, played classical and popular music on piano. She was all, you know, so there was always a piano in the house and there was lots of music in the house. My, my mother had tons of records and she had all kinds of stuff. I mean, just... You know Benny Goodman and um, and Mitch uh, Mitch Miller. Uh, um, come on, help me out here. Uh, Glenn Miller, my God. Glenn Miller, yep. And, and West Side Story, and I saw oh, Artie and, Shore. I'm I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, Artie Shore, yep, and all kinds of stuff. And then my brother was eight years older than me, so he was sort of from the Elvis generation. So there there was some Brazil '66 and Johnny Mathis and that kind of stuff. And um, I rem and it, how it started for me, you know, the path started for me is um, we had an assembly at my elementary school. And it's funny because I'm still friends with the girl who reminded me of this. Her name's Janice Patla. She lives down in Naples. So she's she's kind of a neighbor, and, but still a great friend. And um, and I. Uh, I remember her telling me um, that when the high school band uh, band from the high school was going to come and do an assembly at our at our school, and my mother was winding me up about it. Oh, it's 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 Mr. Renino and the band. The high school band is the best, and they're the best, and it's this and that. And uh, and I so I was all excited. And when I went there, um, I'm sitting in the front row of the balcony next to Janice, and the band started to play, and I had never heard. This, I had never heard ambience before. You know, I mean, I obviously heard music. I watched television. I listened to records, but I never heard the room. And being all the way in the back, when when the the guy started playing the snare drum, because it was it wasn't a trap set. It was you know bass drum and cymbals and the guy playing the snare. When he started playing the snare and it echoed through the room, I said to Janice, "That's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life." So and you. Yeah. I was going to say, you knew, as soon as you saw that, you knew you wanted to play drums. Yeah, as soon as I heard it, I, that I knew I wanted to play drums. And she said she always remembers from that point on, uh, I had drumsticks in my back pocket. And um, But in my elementary school, you weren't allowed to take lessons until fourth grade. So I had to wait like four years, five years until I could take lessons. 
but my mom got me some drums and I was playing. So I had been playing for years. And when I finally got to take lessons, it was like, guys, I, I don't want to know this. I want to. Right, want right. To. Yeah. So like, like when you're a kid and you like my first guitar teacher was teaching me Camp Town Racetrack when I wanted to be learning how to play Smoke on the Water. Is that kind of thing? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it pretty much was that kind of thing. And, um, you know, and I was in a band, I think, I can't, I would say from 11 or 12. And this that was, was your first band, your first band? Three Beatles. Um, we were called the Continentals. Okay. And it was our friend Jan and, and the guy who wound up being the bass player in Rat Race, Dave, but he was playing accordion. So Jan played trumpet. I had a snare drum and a hi-hat, no kick drum yet. And that was our band. We had the Continental theme, which was an original, and we played the Saints Go Marching In. And I don't remember what else we played, but that was our first band. And then the Beatles happened, and, you know, that was just... That changed everything. Changed everything, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so now we're talking, uh, I, I guess that that's around 1964-ish, 62? Yeah, 64 yeah, so the so the Beatles hit um, soon after the Rolling Stones. Um, where so where were you when this was going on, and and what was your first real band? What what was how old were you? Were you playing? I'm sure you had to be playing all the the junior high parties or okay. the high school parties. I mean, where did where did we go then? Well, we went to. I mean, we. Dave and I stayed together. You know, we we went from the Continentals. Um, you know, I mean, it, it would, we'd play in the basement of the apartment building and we'd do whatever we did for the kids. But but finally, um, when the Beatles came out, we just we decided to call ourselves the Bugs. Okay, because the whole English thing was happening. Yep. And that didn't work out so well. So then we were the Tottenhams. And, and then with the accordion? And no, 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 no. He had gotten a bass by oh. this time. And then we then the um then we were the Roaches, which, you know, uh and and finally in sixty eight we formed Rattery's Choir and we played our first gig in the July of that year at the YWCA and, uh, and yeah, but yeah, we were playing, you know, parties and so how, old, how old were you when you guys started rat race? Were you still in high school or just, oh, yeah. I, I think I might've been in junior high school in junior high school. Okay. 15, 15. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, now the original rat race choir. So Dave's playing bass. Is it, um, we, who else is playing in the band at that time? We had a, a keyboard player named Peppy Ficaretta, and and the guitar player was Chris Murphy, and uh, we had a lead singer who is still one of my absolute best friends to this day, Chris Peck. So we were a five piece, and then and, and it's funny because we used to go and play at the Westchester County Jail um, wow. for the prisoners, and they loved it, and and. <laughs> I mean, it was insane. Uh, that's, I mean, you want to get bitten by the bug, go play for some yeah, criminals. How did, that, how did you do that? Uh, I don't you, you and Johnny Cash. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I think Johnny might have done it first. But yeah, we played at the, at the Westchester County Pen. And this is the this is how full circle stuff is. We're, we're there, right? And the, and I guess it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like high crime. Uh, you know, it was all pot dealers and, you know, unpaid tickets or whatever. And who comes up to us 
But Jan, the trumpet player from the Continentals, he was in oh, jail. Wow. He, was, he, was, <laughs> he was doing a bid for dealing weed or something. We oh, said, God. when you get out, you can be our light man. And, <laughs> and, and, and he was for years. And that's so that's yeah. So that's how that happened. And and then um, and we were playing, you know, we were playing Light My Fire, all the tunes of the day. We were playing a lot of Motown. Uh, stuff because you know we, it was we were popular rascals stuff we played because we had the b3 peppy had a b3 and then uh yeah, he, was, he was actually taking the b3 to shows oh yeah oh yeah but and the reason he was he, the reason he had to be replaced is because we had to sneak the b3 out of his house because uh, his father, who was, you know, a, a, an immigrant Italian father, uh, you know, we said, oh, you got to get a Hammond. You got to get a Hammond. And he got the Hammond. But then when we wanted to take it out of the house, it was, no, the Hammond cannot leave the house. What do you mean? No. What? So we played a couple of gigs and we realized that the Hammond could not leave the house. And that's when we met Larry McGowan, who was the keyboard player, the one that you saw. Right. At the reunion. And, um, and Larry joined the band and uh, replaced Peppy. And, you know, his mother didn't care whether he took his B3 out. So it was cool. Um, that's, I mean, but boy, I remember the days when people used to carry those things around with the Leslie's. And, oh, man, that, I mean, it, it, that was more work than doing the gig. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And Larry had, he had the thing with the strap, you know, the cover that went over the B3. And then those two... Uh, they they look like, for lack of a better word, they look like um, uh, uh, hand carts, two hand carts that went under each side and you strapped it together and it had wheels and it had the handles. And, but it still weighed 425 pounds. And, uh, you know, so I was conveniently not around when when we got to that part of the truck. <laughs> so, all right. So you're so you guys are still kids. You're, um, how did you get the name Rat Race Choir, by the way? Um, well, the guitar player, the original guitar player, Chris Murphy, it's actually, it's a, it's a, a lyric from a Dylan song from, from it's all right, mom only bleeding. Um, and you know, you know, that's, uh, that's where it can, I guess, uh, Chris was a, a Dylan fan. He was older than us too, by a couple of years, older okay. than everybody by a couple of years. And he said, you know, we should call ourselves rat race play because it's the line is he who sings with his tongue on fire gargles in the rat race choir. And so, okay, you know, I mean, it was a cool name. It's yeah. And, you know, then we started, we started playing gigs. And I remember uh, it had to be, well, Hendrix was already out because I remember getting one of my brother's white shirts and drawing eyeballs on it because I wanted to have wardrobe, you know, and, and, uh, and we played, uh, we played at the YWCA on North Street for, uh, it was some kind of military thing because they had wow. buses. Buses brought in the cadets and buses brought in the girls. Girls were on one side, the cadets were on the other side. It was as weird as it could be. And then somehow uh, we started getting gigs. And I was, you know, I was underage. We were playing the fore and aft in, in White Plains. And we played this place called the Trade Winds in uh, Newburgh. And there were like five stages in this room, right? And wow. And yeah, well, the other four stages were for the strippers. <laughs> that they did not know about. That we didn't know. Really? And back in those days. 100%. And I'm like, I'm well, playing yeah. like this. It's like, 
and you know are we sharing a dressing room well no uh, you know so but uh, yeah so it that's, was that's got to be that's got to be fun for a bunch of young lads oh man let me tell you about fun this and then someone <laughs> gives you money this is amazing so after that you know and we would play wherever we could there we would play at any of the cyo dances or the any of the high school things and we played this we there we had a uh there was a, this thing called the showmobile in White Plains. And it would it was basically a, a truck that had a stage built into it. And they would drive around and they'd put on concerts or do whatever. And we were playing at it uh, at a, in Lake in, yeah, I guess it would have been in. Uh, so it was like a truck, like like they have to, like like some of the, they, they drive it in, they set it up, it opens up to a stage. Exactly. Okay. And, and so we were playing, it was, 1970 or 71 and we were playing at this place called turn your park which was just a park in in silver lake and a guy came down from the apartment building that was behind the stage we were so he wasn't you know we weren't playing at his building and he said listen i'm a bartender in the hamptons during the summer and i think you guys would be great out there and that's really how it started so we, we went out to it on lake street now how, how old are you guys in 71 like what you do high school yes yeah, yeah high school okay yeah, I, remember, yep. I remember we started playing um we started playing um on the weekends and we played we started playing early after memorial day so you're out in the hamptons on montauk highway and it was actually watermill which is hot, hot dog beach Hot Dog Beach. We played Hot Dog Beach. But this place was called Middy's General Store. And what okay. it was, it was an old mansion um, from the rum running days because, you know, all the canals ran in. So they used to bring the booze in there. And it was a speakeasy. So what they did was they converted the downstairs to a nightclub and kept the rooms upstairs. So the band lived upstairs. The bartenders lived there. And we would play Friday, Saturday, and Sunday before the season started. And I remember hustling to get home because I would have to go to school the next day. Like, yeah, I remember some of the when when, when I was younger. Not not in those days. I was probably late eighties, early nineties. But I was playing out in like uh, Greenport and East Hampton. And I remember those four in the clock, four o'clock in the morning drive homes when you're when you're. Ah. But uh, yeah, for sure. So let me. So let's go back a little bit still here. Um, so when you started playing drums, obviously Ringo. Who who else was influencing you? Um, well, it's. Uh my first real influence even before Ringo because I was playing before I knew of Ringo right. was Krupa because my mother had this record called The Essential Gene Krupa it was a red album cover with a black kind of silhouette picture and I believe on it was like this drum battle between him and Buddy Rich oh wow and, and you know Buddy is amazing you can't take anything away from him but he was so technical and so just articulate it, I, I just gravitated to Gene, you know, because because uh, Gene was that that whole jungle boogie kind of thing, a lot of Tom Toms. And uh, so he was my first influence. And then and then my next influence was Dino Dinelli from the Young Rascals. Oh, wow. um, and and in fact, you can see, you know, I, I even I put up the genuine guest background so that I'm not in my spaceship. And you, you notice that my crash symbols are all flat even the the little splashes they're, they're not tilted like the like the pangs but they're all flat and that's because dino played with his flat 
and I, I've done it. And it just kind of went with you kind of went with it because that was your concert. Yeah, that was my first concert. And um, he played he was playing uh, sparkling champagne Ludwig's. So I was conflicted because if you're a Krupa guy, you're a Slingerland guy. So I, my first set that I actually owned that I bought, you know, but my mother would buy me whatever I got. My first real kit was a sparkling champagne Slingerland, you know, kit. Not a, not a bad kit. Um, my question, my question was he, was he a double bass player or no? Who, Gene? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he did it. But I got on to double bass from Ginger Baker. Yeah, I was going to say Ginger Baker. And uh, it's funny because I, I met Ginger. Ginger came to one of our gigs later in life. We had a conversation about it. And But I'll tell you how the, how the, yeah, I was playing with John Entwistle because they, they knew each other. And so Ginger came to our gig. But how the double bass thing happened is there was a kid down the street from me named Mike Rago. And he had the exact same set that I had, sparkling champagne, Slingerlands. He had the 12 inch Tom Tom. I had the 13. He had the, the 14 inch floor Tom. I had the 16 inch floor Tom. And he said, uh, do you want to buy my set? And I said, I certainly do. And that's how, you know, that's, two bass drums, two rack Toms, two floor Toms. And that, and I was off. And so you, so once that happened, I mean, that's been your style. You've always played double bass and, and the big kits. And I mean, that's rock and roll from, from our era, the seventies, eighties and nineties. It's, you know, you, especially when you're playing, I guess, a lot of progressive and a lot of, um, uh, you know, hard rock type stuff. It's, it's the big kit. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I mean, I used, I built my kit or built up my kit based on the music that we were doing. If I needed bongos, then there were bongos. If I needed triangles, then there were triangles. And so it wasn't, and I remember going to a Buddy Rich clinic once, watching Buddy play live, and everybody walked up at the end, and I showed him a picture of my kit, and it's all these tom-toms and all this stuff, and he says, do you play all these? And I said, they wouldn't be there, you know, cocky kid. They wouldn't be there if I didn't play them, man. You know, so... <laughs> Yeah, you're lucky he didn't yell at you. All right, so so um, let's go to 1978. And the reason I say that, 70, 78, 79, let me just uh, get rid of this uninstall Adobe Flash because I don't want to deal with it now. Um, 1978, 1979, I was a kid on Long Island, 15-ish. Um, and I was really, you know, I'm, I'm playing guitar about six, seven years at that point. Uh, I'm really into music. I sneak out to see the bands. The drinking age was 18, so at 16, sometimes I could squeeze in the door and see all my favorite bands. I lived, I lived a block, and well, not a block, but I lived half a mile away from Speaks. Oh, Island Park. Yeah, well, I live in Long Beach, so I was half a half a mile from Speaks, and and you know you open up uh, the music paper, the Good Times, and uh, every other page, Rat Race Choir, Rat Race Choir, Rat Race Choir, Rat Race Choir, Rat Race Choir. What's going? And 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 Mark Hit now is in the band, right? Right, Mark. So Mark. Mark joined in '74, and this is interesting too. You go. Um, Larry was the first one out of the original five guys, Larry was the first one to come into the band. He replaced the keyboard player. Next was a guy called Bob Catapano, and he came in in 70, 
one because he was with us at the Hampton. So he replaced Chris Murphy on guitar. And then uh, Bob and Dave wanted to uh, split the vocal duties. So they said that we didn't, we no longer needed the singer. So we had to, so Chris was given his walking papers and okay. uh, we became a four piece. And then after Bob Catapano left, Bob Mayo joined the band as a guitar player. Okay. The, the keyboard player from Frampton, right? And he was already playing with Frampton. That was seventy three. Wow. He was in the band. He was in the band for a year, and then uh, Frampton said, "Come on, you know, we're going to start touring." And as you know, it was that was a good move for Bob. Yeah. yeah. And that's when we got Mark hit seventy four. And um, how do you guys so, meet? How do you meet Mark? Where did he come from? He was playing in another band called Gates Pass, and oh, they yeah, were. Yeah. Yeah, they were a popular band and they and, you know, um, it just all, you know, right place, right time. And um, he was playing that ES355, which no yeah, one I remember that everybody else was playing Les Pauls or Strats. And here he is with a hollow body Gibson. Yeah. But he made things scream. Well, he, I mean, you know, he was also, you know, he also was a sizable guy and I, I I don't think you really even realized how big the guitar is because you know in fact I know that Ed Roman built him a guitar um, uh, called a Quicksilver but he built it a little bit bigger for Mark just so yeah. he had, had that size uh, thing that was so, a great guitar Mark I mean I remember when when Ed built that for for Mark um, you know, he put, I mean, Mark knows more about the way a guitar is supposed to feel than most guys will ever get. And, you know, he was able to really get, you know, get that guitar exactly the way he wanted it, but it never was quite what the 355 was to him. And then I remember, you know, that's, that's just was his weapon of choice. As long as I knew, you know, I'll say this about Mark. I, I, Absolutely, one of my favorite guitar players. Love his the 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 vocabulary. The stuff he comes up with is beautiful. He can he can play. He can really play. He knows his instrument. Um, as a guy who's done his sound quite a few times, turn down a little, buddy, please. You know, I want to I want to be able to put you through to PA. You know, <laughs> that was you know that was always that was always the you know I guess. Uh, call it a downside or whatever um you know and our answer to that was well let's just play bigger places you know yeah. <laughs> but yeah uh, that, you i know. did it i did a gig with him one time at jones beach outside with the hindenburg guys uh -huh. he was playing with them this is outdoors there's there's no bouncing i still couldn't really put him through the pa oh, and, I I kept that, and i kept asking him no but listen i i love him I love him, and he's and he's freaking amazing. And what and what I was gonna say to you is, the Rat Race Choir I know was that 1978 to like whatever 80 80 whatever it was. It's actually, Larry left in '79, but so it was it was '80. We got um, uh, Gordon Cohen was the keyboard player for a while and then jack came in but but the band that you knew and the band that i call the classic lineup was that four-piece band with mark larry the one that did the reunion dave and myself right right uh, it was you know there there will never be another band like that for me i mean I, i've played in in some of the best 
situations you could ever want to play in. But growing up with guys and learning your music as they're learning theirs, there's a chemistry that happens that right. you know, it's just the stuff you guys play. Um, some of the some of the songs you guys pull out. I I could ne I've never ever seen a band do a B like you said there's a chemistry there's a there's a chemistry that you guys had that was second to none it just it's just you know it, it would be like zebra without guy gelso it would be it's it's led zeppelin without john bonham you can't you can't have those that i understand you know everyone's upset that uh that robert plant doesn't want to do led zeppelin but i get it I get that's why Rush will never play again. You know, it's yeah. it's it's the there's a chemistry and a and a certain integrity and quality to the music, and that's what you guys had. It was it was um, it was magical. It was an incredible band, and you guys should be proud of that. Uh, I, I believe you. I'm very proud. I mean, you know, there's always the little scrapes and bumps along the way when things start to yeah. change, and yeah. there was a number of of things. It wasn't just like. You know, you, uh, it wasn't it wasn't one thing that changed. I mean, the drinking age changed. Uh, the management for us wasn't right. Uh, the scene, you know, it should have happened for us in the 70s, in 76, 77. That's when it should have. That's when we should have crossed over and we would have had some longevity and or who knows what we would have had. But, you know, that was my mindset. And there's a, a trap. You know, when you're when you're too good at doing something and you're making a lot of money for yourself and other people doing it, nobody wants you to stop doing it. And, yeah. you know, and that was, you know, in the speaks days, uh, I was the one who, you know, I wanted original material and we had a house in the Hamptons and we used to go out there all winter and write and write and write and write. And, uh, you know, it just I, it just didn't go that right. way and I, I understand and i also know there was there was some mental discrepancies within the guys and you know whatever let's so let's get to the you know the 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 towards the end of rat race choir you know we don't have to talk about what happened and you know and all that stuff but let's so so rat race choir for you comes to an end um and and it was probably a, a bit of a dark time but then you get to work with the amazing John Antwistle, right? Was it right well, after yeah. that? And there's a, well, there's a crossover. How, okay. it, how, how it happened was we were, we lost Larry in 87, uh, excuse me, in, in, uh, in 79. Okay. And we, we were, so we were playing three piece, which was amazing. We we're going out as a power trio, you know, I'm uh, playing cream and the who, and just all the power trio stuff and Hendrix. It was, it was great time. And, but then the drinking age changed and the club scene changed. And for us, we were sort of, you know, like a dinosaur in the in the early to mid 80s. Wow. And by 85, we were playing just the wrong places, playing little places. I mean, we were playing, but it, it wasn't going in the direction that it should have been going in or it could have been going in. And so I started a band in, in um, with another amazing guitar player called Lou Ubriaco. And the band was called Mighty Joe Young. And we, um, 
you know, we played and we tried it. It was a power trio again, but the gigs just weren't there. And then in 87, um, Jack was our keyboard player, Jack Hotop, but Jack was working for Korg so that we couldn't play because Jack had to go to work the next day. So we were a kind of a trio and then we were kind of a four piece. And so it wasn't like, you know, hey, you stole my girlfriend, you're out of the band. It wasn't that. It was just all points of light coming to bear. And in 87, we decided to go out to our first NAMM show, the whole band, because Jack was, he was going to be there working with Korg. So Mark, Dave and I said, you know, let's go and see what happens. And that's where uh, we met John. And, you know, that was, I mean, me being the shy retiring guy that I am, I said to him, you want to jam? And he said, anytime. And I, that to me was a license to steal. And I was on the NAM floor telling anybody that would listen, I'm playing with John and Whistle. And we wound up playing at the Seymour Duncan uh, NAM jam at the Celebrity Theater, uh, not the Celebrity, the Vic Theater. Okay. Chicago, because it was at McCormick Place then before it moved to Nashville, Nam- to Nashville. And John and I, and he's, <laughs> I remember, <laughs> it's, a, it's a long story, but I, I, and I won't go into chapter and verse, but on the way, I picked him up, I go to Kramer, and I said, guys, I'm playing with John Entwistle, and we'd like to jam. We understand that you guys and Seymour Duncan to have the big jam. They said, John Entwistle? Oh, yeah, no problem. You know, tell where are you staying? What are you doing? And all of a sudden, I'm getting waltzed around like a king. And I'm staying at, like, the, the Cracker Barrel Motel, you know, <laughs> and they send a limousine for me. And a limousine's bigger than the freaking front of the motel. And so I'm calling everybody, guys, meet me here, meet me there. We're going to play with John Hamilton tonight. Meet me there. And so I pick up John and Andy, his roadie, and he gets into this limousine. It's like, uh, where are we going? And I said, <laughs> can we go play? He said, uh, what are we going to play? I said, we'll play some Who songs. He said, I don't know any. I said, well, the guys will teach him to you when you get, you and know, when we get there. Years yeah, he, he hadn't played. It was 81. He hadn't played with the Who or 82, whatever it was. And so we get to the Vic Theater and we're in a blacked out limo and he's not looking. So he doesn't see where we even are. And we get hustled down the back stairs to a dressing room, a row of dressing rooms. And it says John Entwistle on the door. And it's like, he's like, what the f- is this? And so the guys come in and we're teaching him, you know, we're going over the live at Leeds stuff, which is what we did. And he, and he said, you guys even learned the mistakes. <laughs> so, so, and we went out and we played um, Summertime Blues, Won't Get Fooled Again, uh, the whole see, see Me, Feel Me thing, Pinball Wizard, uh, you know, four songs. And because, I, I mean, I was just our bass player just didn't play bass. So John played bass. Oh, we did. Um, yeah. Summertime Blues. Cause John did. How do you do that? I your son, but you're too young to vote. <laughs> and, and it's actually, I, I have it on film. I mean, somebody videoed the first notes that I ever played with the guy. Wow. And because we locked as a rhythm section, he was like, I mean, when he walked out onto that stage and saw however many thousands of people were in a theater, an old vaudeville theater, and there were the whole back of the 
the stage was television screens and there was a gear all over the place. Leslie West had just played. Dweezil Zappa introduced us. We walked on that stage. He was like, what the hell did I get myself into here? But then we played, you know, nobody, you know, yeah, you can play bass. And we just did what we did. And, and we locked like we locked. And so the rest of that night up in the green room, all we did was tell jokes back and forth and I, and that was just it it was jokes for like two hours and he gave me his number and said call me and i said i i absolutely will and then i get a call from the girl that actually set the kramer jam up her name was karen iamello sweet sweet girl very good uh, at what she did you know pr and she said uh, would 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 john Entwistle be interested in playing the k rock and roll up your sleeve blood drive I said, of course. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. So at the bottom line. And, you know, they're going to broadcast it live and blah, Howard blah, blah. Uh, we had to do the Howard Stern show. So I said, yeah, I said, yeah he'll, of course he will. And John, uh, do you want to play it? And uh, yeah. And he said, okay, yeah. And it was November. And so I said, well, listen, you know, since you're coming in anyway and they're paying for your flight and they're getting us all this stuff, why don't we do another like lots of gigs? <laughs> and that's really how it started. We went wow. out and uh, at the bottom line, Rat Race Choir was the opener. Mark left the stage. Leslie West came out and we played the mountain stuff. Yeah. Then Mark came back. Leslie West. Uh, Leslie left. John played bass, Dave sang, and we did the Who stuff. Wow. So we, we took it on the road for a month. And uh, and the following year, John said to me, you know, uh, we, we stayed friends and we would just call each other up. And we were friends. It wasn't like, oh, man, you're the guy in the Who. Right. I mean, there, were, there certainly were moments of that. But right. You know, right. I mean, you're right. I get that. I understand that. And he asked me to join his band in 88 which I did. And it was probably one of the most miserable tours I ever did because they were not, you know, it wasn't my guys, but John and I stayed together. We played again in 90, 91. And then um, he rang me up and said, you know, let's put a proper band together, which we did. And that was the John Entwistle band. And that, so the John Entwistle band, the real John Entwistle band you're talking about was like early 90s. Mid 90s. Mid 90s. Yeah, 95. 95 and and um and really if it wasn't for fate and that that time that you guys met at nam it never would have happened never would have happened it, it was it was such okay i mean you want to talk about weird things if you go back and you look at the dates of that nam it was june yeah 27th yeah he died on june 27th wow yeah, I mean, there's there's so many of those things. Yeah, the same time. Yeah, at the so, same time. We met him. We met him at at uh, two o'clock in the afternoon in Chicago, and he died, or they found him at noon in Vegas. Yeah. So it's fifteen years later. And so my so my question to you is: When John passed away, were you you guys were still actively in a band? Yeah, we had just finished. Uh, we had just finished a, a, a year-long tour. That the tour that um, Ann Wilson. with Ann Wilson, and we we were we were touring between the Abbey Road gigs uh, as the Entwistle Band. We were it was a 2001 A Bass Odyssey was the name of that tour. Yeah, 
So yeah. we did that and we did the walk down Abbey Road with Todd and Alan Parsons and Anne. And, it's incredible. And uh, yeah, and and we ended the tour in Japan and it was the last time we were in the same room together. I didn't know it was going to be, but, you know, but, but we stayed I mean, and the weird thing know. is, is that he told you that he loved you. Yeah, the day he, yeah, the and day he never had said that. Before. He wasn't. John was not warm and cuddly that way. But right. he said, said to me, the last thing he ever said to me was, "Love you, mate." Yeah. And I said, "I love you too, mate." Uh, I'll I'll talk to you tomorrow. And yeah, tomorrow never came. So so John passes away. It's got to be a, probably one of the lowest times in your life. Um, where do you go from there? <laughs> uh, where do I go from there? The state part attack. <laughs> oh, right. Well, yeah. Pil Pilgrim State Psychiatric. I mean, where'd you go, man? Well, <laughs> um, it wasn't. Well, actually, where I went was actually to a very satisfying and good place musically because I knew, John, I knew that The Who was going to, was meant to tour in 2002. And John and I were partners. I wasn't his drummer. We were we had a business together and we started a business, which we still run to which Lori and I still run to this day. Um, and so I was going to do things out on the road with him and this and that. Um, and um, and as a result of knowing that that we weren't going to tour, I had reconnected with Mark Hitt, who I hadn't, you know, really been connected to for years. Well, and um, I said, man, let's, you know, I had a, I had a demo studio in, in my house in the mountains. And I said, let's write some stuff. And we did. We wrote, I mean, we wrote, in my opinion, the album that Rat Race should have done 20 years before that. And I mean, and it's still some of the, my, my proudest uh, writing and, and performances are on that record. And we released it uh 2002 we started writing when john was still alive and in fact um we wrote a song mark and i wrote a song with entwistle on the phone wow. i called john was in la and i had taken a piece of one of his bass solos and i it was at the beginning of digital audio and and i made it into a bass part mark wrote chords over it and I sent it to John, and uh, or I called him up. I played it for him. He said, "Do this, do that," and uh, and it actually made it on our, I think, on both of our on our live album and our studio album. Is that available on Spotify? Can people get that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's what is what's it called? Endless Vacation. Say it again. Endless Vacation. The it's the okay. John man, and John when we went to record the the studio album in 90 whatever it was he came into the cuz he had a i mean he had a, a an incredible studio with the double doors and all the stuff and the, the you know just i mean two uh two MCI 24 tracks strapped and i mean just you know let's let's do it right and he cut we're, we're, we're there for the first day of we were going to routine for a couple of days. We were there for the first day of routining and he comes in with this book and he says, have you ever seen this book about the who? And it's called endless vacation and it's all about the vacation spots. And so it was after that, that we wrote the song, but you know, he was, that was just, that was just John. A documentary. That's, yeah. so, that's, that's so, that's so awesome. 
Um, I know years later on, you and Mark uh, did some work with Robin Zander, with the Robin Zander band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Robin, I, well, Mark and I formed the, the, the solo thing that we did, we called Torque. And we had a couple of, we had great musicians. Uh, the Ama I'm sure you know Chris Clark, who plays with Wondrous Stories. Of course, of course. Absolutely. If you got to have a keyboard player, Chris, Chris is, is amazing. Chris is, he doesn't, he doesn't play with Wondrous anymore, by the way. No, I know he's with Brand X. I just yeah. actually spoke to him the other day because um, I was in a situation where I might need a sub for something and he'd be my first call guy every time. Yeah. Um, and Jeff Gans was the bass player. Jeff is an amazing player. Yeah. And so we had a just a great band. And when John passed, I said, well, this is it. I had already, we had already started recording the record and we had uh, writing the, the demos and that whole thing. So I kind of slid into that. So, so for, till about 2003, 2004, that was the band. Then um, Lori's mom, was sick and and uh we had to go we went down and uh instead of putting her into hospice we moved into the house with her in slide l and we were there for eight months so that she could i get it I get that. Home. and that kind of you know put the squash on torque and and then i guess it was the following year we moved to florida okay um but the an, an interesting thing, just to, how many weird things there are. When one of the things that John and I were doing in 2000 is I got a call from Justin Kreutzman, son of Bill Kreutzman, one of the drummers for The Grateful Dead. Justin's a filmmaker. He said, oh, I'd love to do a film, you know, I'd love to do something with the John Ellisle band. And I said, We don't really have anything, you know, we're not releasing anything. So there's really nothing to do. And I called John up and I got this idea. I said, You know what? you're going to go out with the who and i'm thinking this had to be 98 97 98 it was between we weren't going to tour that year because he was going to go out with the who. and i said why don't we do a documentary about you know the old soldier getting out his gun getting out his uniform and 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 go through the process make a documentary about what it's like to go back out and prep to do this thing because i knew what it was like i knew what technical day was i knew yep. what wardrobe day was but and i so i thought i'd make an interesting documentary so justin and i um got got these backers it had to be 99 because we had played woodstock 99 and it was after that and so we got these backers and they came up with all this money and they sent us to england and we shot 10 hours of just john and i bullshitting telling stories wow. we talked about this we talked about that um and i actually went to um burbank to edit the to edit the documentary john said oh we can sell it on the tour you know if, if you finish it in time <clears throat> the guy said we can sell it on the tour so you and i steve and john can make some money you know we can make some extra money i said great and he said i even have a name and i said what you have you have a name and he said yeah call it an ox's tail t-a-l-e and so after he passed uh, you know, some people tried to do some sneaky stuff and and it came back to me and, and I said, you know, I'll finish it posthumously. We'll do it as a the John Russell story and Pete's in it and um, Chris Squires in it and Billy Squires in it. I have all the Squires. Wow. Um, Roger Glover was in it. Wow. Uh, 
uh, Kia Manzarek, Ray Manzarek from the Doors, and Jim Ladd, the DJ. It's you know, so so I finished it, you know, later on, I guess, in that year, and um, and then I'm in Florida, and I meet. Uh, and we have a hurricane. I'm here for 13 days and a freaking hurricane shows up. You know, coming after me with a knife, I don't have a problem. I'm from New York. Weather, I don't do weather. You know, I'm hearing oh, so flood surge, tidal surge, and all these, you know, what the fuck? And so I'm all freaked out. So when the hurricane came and nothing happened to our house, I said, that's it. Let's, let's do a hurricane. Because I heard all these disasters. Let's do a hurricane relief party because we have a, a an arena down here Jermaine arena and i had been um dj sub you know being a guest dj on a radio show you know just trying to keep my toe in the water and uh i i called eddie money who was a friend and i called buck dharma from uh, boc blue oyster called who was a friend and eddie was a great eddie was a great guy wasn't he great guy i loved i loved him man gen- he's a he was a genuine person yeah, just an amazing guy. A- anyway, so uh, so um, the guy who owned the station said, you know, why don't you call Cliff Williams? And I said, who's Cliff Williams? He said, he's the bass player in ACDC. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, and he gave me his cell phone, right? So I called up. I said, hey, Cliff, this is Steve from the John Ellis event. Ah, hi, mate. And they wound up, he said, My, you know, Brian just wow. lived up the street in Sarasota. And so they came and they played the concert. Well, wow. Cliff I... He, but not with us, not with my core right. band. Okay. And so Cliff and I got friendly. I mean, what's what you do with, you know, when you find another, when you're in Florida and you find another guy who's in your end of the business, boy. It's eight o'clock, Oh, uh, go. I know you got to go. No, 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 it's it's okay. It's okay. Tell right. them, finish the story. So, so um, I said, you know, Cliff, anytime you want to jam, uh, my guitar player lives in New York. He's got a, you know, he's got a rig at my house and a, and a room in my house. You know, I could have him come down anytime. He said, well, you know, my singer lives just up in Sarasota. And um, so Mark and I started writing ACDC-esque songs. And Cliff loved them. He, and played bass like, I mean, he's a, I hope I don't say this the wrong way. He's a, a far better bass player than you could ever understand from, you know, the basic stuff that he plays in ACDC. He's a monster. Well, he- He's a, he's very solid though. You could tell the way he plays. Yeah, but also can be very melodic. Gotcha. So he said, "Well, you know, what do you want to do with this stuff?" I said, "Well, I don't know. Is there a recording studio?" And he said, "Well, we'll need some lyrics. I'll call Brian." And Brian came down. Brian and I wrote all the lyrics for like wow. seven songs. And they said, "Well, let's go and tour." So we we did about ah, twenty dates. Um, from Chicago to New York, we played the Chance two nights at the Chance, and we played. I think we played BB Kings and ACGC's manager Alvin Handworker and Steve Barnett, the president of Sony, came to see us at BB Kings. Wow! And Steve Barnett says to Cliff, "You know what? Well, this is a great band. What are you doing with this?" And he said, "I don't know. What should I do with it?" And he said, "Well, you do all us a, a record." Huh. And so Cliff said, well, okay, all right. And then Alvin Handworker hears this going on. The next thing I know, they're going to Vancouver to record Black Ice. With no songs. With with no songs written. (laughs) Just get them away from these two guys. Yeah. And that's why he toured that tour. That sucks. So, yeah. Uh, Listen, you... 
first of all, we need to do, I think, a part two of this interview because there's a lot more. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's it's pretty. You've, let me tell you, buddy, you've got quite a uh, uh, quite a resume, and it's very impressive. But I always knew that about you. Um, I've learned I've learned a lot today. I, I want to ask you, um, best rock drummer of all time. Well, if I went from the from the Anwistle School, I would say me. <laughs> but that's what John you know, was. I, I I can't disagree. But go ahead. Um, favorite rock drummer of all time would have to be Barrymore Barlow, the guy who replaced Clive Bunker in Jethro Tull. And the reason for that, answer, well, there's a there's a real weird catch to that too. Barrymore played two bass drums. Play was a very melodic, creative player, and playing inside of Tull on Thick as a Brick and all of that stuff, he just was just, he ticked all the boxes for me. Love Cobham, love Bonham, love Mitch Mitchell, love Ringo, love, but, but the most complete guy was Barrymore. Wow. And so, and we can, we can end it here because John, and this, I didn't even believe this. I'm in England in 88 to join John's band. And he said to me, who's your favorite drummer? And I said, Barrymore Barlow. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you just replaced him. <laughs> wow. He was yeah. in the band wow. before yeah. Wow. All right. If you, if you could play with anybody dead or alive, who it would be? Hendrix, no question. Hendrix, 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 and and whistle. <laughs> you know that that to me would just be, oh God, that would be it. That would be. But someone asked, I asked somebody that question, and the truth of the matter, if I could really play with anybody, dead or alive, it would have been Rat Race, nineteen seventy-eight. Okay, I, that I understand too. Um, okay, and one more. Uh, let's let's say, um, what what are your feelings on a guy like Neil Peart? Neil Peart. Um, I want to like Neil Peart, 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 whatever. Peart. But when I realized that he plays things the same every night, I mean, he, he's a brilliant executioner of drumming brilliant and you can't take that away from him but why he's not a favorite of mine is because there's no risk and the thing that that i loved about rat race that i loved about the end whistle band even the robin zander band or the guys in acdc is it was never the same twice i never did the same solo twice in my life i mean i would do same parts I, it was all about pushing the envelope and taking the risk. And that's why John and I got on so well, because that's what he was. He was all about taking the risk. Okay, so one more guy, one more guy I want to ask you about. Okay. Alex Van Halen. Alex Van Halen. Um, incredibly inventive and powerful. Um, in fact, Mighty Joe Young, the band that I put together in in 85, played a lot of Van Halen because the guitar player could really play it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I gained an appreciation for Alex when I had to learn his parts. So, you know, he's a strong player. And a lot, a, a lot more difficult to play than people realize by listening to it. Right, because he's very transparent. He, you know, you don't hear that. And I'm, like I said, I didn't really get on to him until I learned his stuff and said, wow, wow. You know, because Eddie's up there. You're listening to that. 
You know what I mean? You're not getting the and two bass drums. I mean, what's not to like? And the guy hit like a freight train. So, you know, very talented and very gifted guy. And I, I hope he finds some place to play now that, you know, uh, now because he's great. All right. Penne vodka or chicken parm? Uh, it depends where we go. Probably chicken parm. I love the penne vodka, but the chicken parm is uh, probably my my first call. Flame broiling or frying? Flame. Okay. All right. That that sums up our uh, interview for today. I think you did it. I think you did an amazing job. I we learned a lot about you, and uh, and we again we appreciate you doing this show every freaking day, Monday through Friday. Um, we need to do a part two of this interview. So whenever you want to do it, you let me know. Well, the well, people yeah. are agreeing, and Fader, they are saying you are doing a great job. Thank yeah. you. Thank so, you so yeah. much. Yeah, I used to do a prank call radio show, so this is I you know I I kind of understand this stuff a little. Hey, listen, I, you know what? I I have some of the best friends that I've never met in person, you know, <laughs> because of this show. And uh, and I would, you know, I hang with you anytime, bro, anytime. So we will do. We'll do part 2. We will. And by the way, we you know, I don't you don't remember me maybe, but I you and I sat in that little stupid room up in Mulcahy's like smacking each other around a little bit that time. Yeah, no, I, I do. <laughs> but, but, no, but now I know who you are. Now I love you. Now you're a brother. We've got music. Yes. Yes. So, absolutely. That's All so right. Cool. All right, my bro. God willing, uh, you know, things will get better. We'll get to see each other soon. OK, so but uh, great, great show. Great interview. And thank you for doing this. Hey, man, thank you for doing it with me. I really appreciate you, bro. Say hello to Kim. and I, I will. Good night, Lori. Bye, Fader. Thank you. Take care, bro. All right, everybody. I'll see you guys soon. Take care. Bye-bye. How great was Fader? Yeah, Fader. I got to go back to my... Uh, I got to go back so to my... So professional. My, yeah, well, he's, man, I tell you what, Fader, he's such an incredible... He's so talented as a um there we go now I feel, um talented as a guitar player as well but uh, but an amazing sound man i mean he's just he's you know he's one of those guys that just has all the gifts and, well, okay and, jeff sites is watching from california oh we're and in california also if favors the audio restoration person Does he do that too yeah he, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah i know he makes some kind of um Little yeah, three he, he makes uh, I mean the stuff. Uh, he's Jeff, a genius, and, man. Yeah, he's a, he's he's in the genius. He's pool. in the genius. Uh, he creates uh, these reampers, and he's got a whole line of products. He has three D printers, and he prints his own cases for things. Amazing. He's so talented, and I I call him. He has given me some of the greatest studio advice on things that I've ever gotten. And he's uh, yeah, miking your drums. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we did a, a FaceTime call, and and he was look, you know, I sent him pictures of how the drums were mic'd and what I was using, and he's just he's a brilliant, brilliant, very talented guy, uh, musician as well as a, a tech guy. So you know, there you go. Yeah. So well done, Fader. Yeah, well done, Fader, man. Thank you, bro. That was uh, that was that was fun for me. I, I uh, that was fun. And he was prepared. He had those questions prepared. Yeah. Now he's uh, you know listen. I the one thing I know about Fader is if he's going to do something, he's he's coming with a loaded gun and probably more than one. Well, Silvio Anelli says that Fader is an ass-kicking guitar player and a great family man. Yeah, I, I agreed. I, I mean, um, 
Yeah, yeah, I've heard him play. I've heard his songs. I, I'm looking forward to playing with him at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a very talented guy. That was a lot of fun. That was that was uh, that was a lot of fun for me. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. I I I, I really did myself. Um, I enjoyed so, yeah. it. You enjoyed it? Yes, I enjoyed it. Because <laughs> it wasn't you. Because you didn't have you didn't have to be the two hundred guests. Okay, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. We have Billy Monroe, the oh, singer from, from, from Monroe. Monroe. Mm -hmm. And I remember Monroe from from the island days. You know, from from the, that time. Uh, I remember that band. I remember seeing them. And not seeing them in person because we were working, but so I remember good times like Phaedra saw Rex. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, just saw saw them advertise, or they'd be on the bill, or they'd be here tomorrow night. We were here tonight. It was, uh, you know, I've said it a million times. It was a great time to to be in a band, to be that age, uh, to be a part of that music scene. It was incredible, and it you know it prepared me. For everything that I've done since then and everything that I'll ever do, um, you know, that was those were the those were the halcyon years. Um, so, yeah. What can I say? I think I said it all, but I'd love to do part two with him. I yeah. think that would be a lot of fun. OK. OK. So, guys, as you know, as the saying goes. <laughs> if I don't see you in the future. See you in the pasture. Good night, everybody. Good night. Well, that concludes the 13th episode of the first season of Rock and Roll Show and Tell, the podcast. I was happy to be our 200th guest on the video live stream, and I want to send a special shout out to my friend Fader is the man for conducting a very thorough and complete interview. Now, he asked the tough questions, and I hope I got most of them right. Anyway, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Jason's Deli. With four convenient locations from Naples to Cape Coral, Florida, they are a must-try. Jason's Deli, where all good things come from wholesome ingredients. And Bradley's Jewelers of South Fort Myers. They specialize in amazing moments. Bradley's Jewelers. Stop by and say hello to Brad and Colby. And we'll see you next week right here on the podcast from the No Gloom Ballroom. It's rock and roll show and tell.